We begin by acknowledging that the land on which we record this podcast is the traditional territory of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabeg peoples. This territory is covered by the Upper Canada Treaties. We acknowledge the enduring presence of First Nation, Métis, and Inuit people on this land, and that not all settlers were brought here by choice. We believe it is important to move forward in the spirit of reconciliation, compassion, and respect. This is the Intersection Hub podcast, where we have candid conversations for social good. My name is Kimberly McKenzie. And my name is Paul Nazareth. We believe in the power of community and that together we can continuously learn, support, challenge, and improve ourselves, our organizations, and our sector. Join us in the Hub. We look forward to getting to know you. How can white women use their privilege, power, and voices to combat systemic racism? In her most recent article called The Issue of Well-Meaning White Women in Fundraising, Liz LeClaire once again got our attention by boldly tabling a topic we all need to think more about. How do we find our voices when we are so unsure what to say? How might we encourage more white women and men to advocate for social justice and a more diverse, equitable, inclusive, and accessible charitable sector? For years, Liz has been a vocal, strong voice for human rights, gender equality, and social justice. She is often accused of being polarizing, divisive, and combative. In this episode, we sit down with Liz to learn more about her and why she works so hard to push so many of us out of our comfort zone. Liz is proud to call herself a fundraiser and a feminist. She brings more than 15 years experience to her role as Director of Major Gifts at the QE2 Foundation in Halifax, Nova Scotia, located on the unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq. Liz is a long-standing member of the Association of Fundraising Professionals and the current chair of the AFP Women's Impact Initiative. She sits on the board of CFRE International and has done so since 2018. In January 2019, Liz published an op-ed with CBC on the rampant issue of sexual harassment in the nonprofit sector, putting a face on the issue. In the fall of 2019, Liz helped co-found the National Day of Conversation to highlight the issue of sexual violence in fundraising. Liz is committed to speaking up about the challenges facing women and marginalized individuals in the nonprofit sector. Please join me in welcoming Liz LeClaire to The Hub. Liz, welcome to The Hub. A lot of people probably don't know, what inspired you to dive into this session? <laughs> oh, into fundraising? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have a, I don't know, I'm sure everyone's story is a bit of a weird one, but um, so I came out, I'm actually not originally from the East Coast, I'm a CFA, I come from away. Um, I grew up in Toronto, in Scarborough, um, shout out to the east side, and uh, I came out here to do my undergrad in political science, uh, wanted to go work in international development, ended up doing um, my master's in international pro- public relations and got an internship at the World Food Program, which was my dream to work at the UN, um, quickly discovered I absolutely hated it, um, mainly because I am which I'm sure will not be a shock to some people. I like to move quickly um, and and do things. I don't understand why it takes a committee to. Um, so it, it quickly became apparent to me that that was not public relations for a large international organization wasn't going to work for me. I, le- I was grateful for the opportunity, uh, just wasn't a fit. But I, what I did get to do was run the Walk to End Hunger. Um, which was their fundraiser. Um, And I loved it. I loved um, taking something that I wanted to see change and being able to do it in real time. I loved engaging with groups of people. I loved being out in the world, kind of getting to know people's stories. Um, And I fell in love with the work and from then on in decided that's what I wanted to do with my career. And I've been very fortunate. through most of my my it's been not always been easy but I've I've found a path and I've I've been really thrilled to be in this sector in a lot of ways so um grateful for that and glad that I found it early um Mm. I'm lucky that's a really lucky thing to have um but also a privilege that I had because I had 
the opportunity to go do that because I could afford to. Um, yeah, so I acknowledge that there was a lot of privilege. And just to be clear for anyone who's listening to this, I am a, um, a white woman, cisgendered. Um, I come fully acknowledging my privileges and the, the upbringing that I have. So um, a lot of what I'm talking about is a very specific perspective on life and experience. So. Um, yeah. As another white cisgendered woman who spent quite a bit of time in the charitable sector, I, I would also like to just start by thanking you. Um, you have done a lot of work and as a feminist uh, and an advocate for um, social justice for women in the charitable sector and for sharing your story of sexual misconduct. Is that the right phrase? Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, sexualized violence, sexual harassment. Yeah, it, it's all good. There's no real I don't one, know. one way to, yeah, no, it's all good. Don't worry. And so you've been a voice. In that you were, I often share as, as Liz is Canada's whistleblower for our sector. Yeah. You're the first person to be in mainstream media, the story broke in CBC, right, to, to call out our sector from the outside in and to acknowledge who we are and, and what we need to face. And that was an incredible thing to do. And I also know at great personal cost. And that's one of the things I really admire about you is the ability to stand and weather the storm. Thank you. Uh, I wanted to thank you because um, I also have lived with using sexuality and being exposed to sloppy, yucky donor kisses and just all sorts of inappropriate touching that I have mm -hmm. been conditioned to accept as part of the job. And mm -hmm. uh, and you have been a strong voice for a lot of women like me, and I appreciate it. And oh, um, thank, you. thank you. No, thank you. I, and having said all of that, uh, I don't want to talk about that today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Saying all of that, we're moving on. Yeah. We're going to talk about cookies. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Baking cookies. Yeah. Right. Well, um, you're this, this most recent paper that you've written about um, white women uh, as um, being complicit, I think, uh, is an important piece of writing. And uh, as we move into that conversation, I I also want to acknowledge my clum clumsiness around it. I'm trying to do my own work in in assessing where have I done harm? How do I make that better? Um, how do I show up differently? Um, you talked about Fleur Larson's podcast on the ethical rainmaker, which I had also listened to. And, and that really shone a light on my role and responsibility as a woman who has dealt with sexual impropriety through my whole career and has tried to figure out how do I show up and now there's this added responsibility of our role in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I'd like to talk about that, if that's all right. Yeah, and I, I would just say, like, I would just like to put it out there. It's not a, and this is, again, a, a safe space. I'm not critiquing anything, and please don't take it that way. I think the way words matter, and I think added responsibility is not how I'd phrase it. I'd say it's always been something that we need to do. I, I think that our awareness around it is increasing. Um, it's not a, it's not like, it's not intended labor. It is, it's a responsibility we have. So I just, um, again, it's, you know, I'm not trying to critique anyone, but I think we have to be careful about phrasing it as that white women are taking on this additional burden and we're not, this is something that we're called to. So um, I, I'm not trying to I just think it's important to put that out there. So well, you're so right, and I think I, Paul will let you into this conversation at some point. I'm <laughs> ready because I I was the I mean I'm the person who watches the freak out. But here's like throwing a rock in a fist. Uh, yeah, I that, and I know as a white cisgendered privileged woman mm -hmm. with uh, housing security and food security, mm -hmm. um, I know that I have. A, a privileged position that I sit from and that I should be using that uh, to improve the world. And yet this is a space where I don't, I haven't found my voice. I don't know what words to use. I am worried about alienating people and making a mistake and embarrassing myself. And I'm mm -hmm. sharing that because I think that there are a lot of women who are silent 
for a lot of those same reasons. Mm-hmm. We don't even the have same, the language. Yeah. The same as the men that felt during me too that they couldn't say anything, right? And right. a lot of a lot of women got really irritated that their the men in their lives or the men that they worked with were quiet. And a lot of them would say that it was because they were worried about saying the wrong thing. And a lot of us encouraged them to speak because silence felt like complicitness or complicity. I don't know what the right, I don't even, not functioning properly, but. Let me, let me reference yeah. a tweet of yours. Uh, and and then uh, the common response that also infuriates, I think all of us. One is when you said, look, I'm done. I'm done catering to your feelings and your egos. Uh, and I'm going to do this work unapologetically. Mm-hmm. And and again, you're you're someone who has said, I'm going to, I'm going to look to live in a world that I want to create, that I want to create for us. I want to stand beside people. And the constant response is, we're working on it, wait. Mm-hmm. And and it's tough because I'm a person who's often given that response too. I now represent an association that needs to make change and constantly telling people we're working on it, wait. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do we how do we progress when we know the change needs to be made uh, and people who've been working on it for uh, a dozen, a hundred years, some people, some organizations, people, communities, how do we manage that tension to make the moves that we need to move, make? Um, but for some, the scope is large. How do we start? So and what, start? I, we get, yeah, I guess I asked the question is what's behind the waiting. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, it's about protecting status quo. And by protecting status quo, we're preserving our roles, we're preserving our power, we're preserving reputation, reputation. we're having, we're not having to, it's like, give me the time to get myself comfortable. And the problem is, is that that's been the phrase that's been used for forever Mm. to prevent Um, somebody, I think it was uh, Rachel D'Souza recently tweeted out an article that was about backlash, white backlash, and how white backlash um, has played a role throughout history against all kinds of things. So it started out talking about um, the Jim Crow era and how white women played a significant role in protesting integration in the school system. Actually, quite a lot of, if you look at the lines of people protesting, the first young girl that walked through the doors at the for the first integrated school, like where she was the first student, a row of white women standing there with signs saying that integration was going to ruin their children's education. Um, and I'm, you know, we, we are not absolved of, um, because we've had to fight for the right to X, X, and X does not mean that we are absolved of our complicitness in all of the things that have taken place in history. And I think, I think in our sector, we're so couched in what it means to be nice, to be kind, to do good. Um, that somehow I think sometimes we think we're we're um, absolved of having to move and make changes that are going to be uncomfortable, and I think it almost is ultra conservative. Um, it reminds me of the fifties nice. sometimes. Weapon, right. Oh yeah, I mean behind the facade of the nice dress, the the perfect hair, the whatever is actually someone who's really afraid of letting go of the power and control that they have and and it's understandable fear it's a fear couched in a lot of harm that's happened to them and I think Fleur Fleur Larson I could just encourage anybody to listen to her speak she does a much better job of articulating it than I do Um, she has years of work in this space to she talks about being in relationship and how we're in relationship with one another Um, I'm extremely critical of our sector not because I want to tear it to apart, but because I want to see it be better. Um, and I think people often confuse those two things and, and think that I, I do it in a very aggressive or combative way. And I think I have the privilege of being able to speak like this because I am a white woman in a position of some you know, responsibility and I have a, a platform on which to speak and I only have it for a period of time before someone else takes over the Women's Impact Initiative or steps on another board that I've been on, I want to use the limited time I have to make a difference. And sometimes that requires some very direct communication. So not everyone has to like it, but they're listening 
and I, I'm going to use it to I'm my happy time. to hear that. And you feel that you've got a kind of a time limit on it when you when you do. Sometimes you share other resources and other people share the resources, but I keep coming back to you for our profession because in the end, you are a practitioner. Mm. You're one of us, you're at a diet in the wool fundraiser. And sometimes other people talk about how to make progress in other areas that doesn't and not that it doesn't apply to us, but other people can use the excuse. Organizations can use the excuse. That's not us and how we do things. And mm-hmm. you know how we do things mm-hmm. and that we could make the decision today in a lot of cases to make the change. There'll be consequences. There'll be costs. But again, I think you're saying in a very strong, open way, I think everybody's ready to pay those costs. And if we all agree at the same time, which we could, we could move forward in a lot of ways tomorrow. And I don't think, I think people say they agree, but I don't think they actually agree. Well, I don't know. I, I do this a lot. I'll tell you, I, I say I disagree and people want me to say they agree because they know I feel that way, but I'm openly, I'm open in saying, I'm afraid I'm yep. with you. I want to be with you, but I'm afraid because the costs are so personal or, you know, are so professional and profound mm-hmm. that I want to be there. But, you know, I'm just other people and you've done it too. you paid the price socially, personally, in a lot of ways. Um, But, you know, I I am. And I think sometimes people need to say, I'm going to run with abandon because it's time. Um, And I, you know, I don't know what it's going to take to help more of our peers get there. Hmm. I think it's it's possible that people say not, not right now or soon because there's so much, I mean, I was conditioned, I was raised in a, in a racist environment. My parents would never admit that. Mm -hmm. But when I sit and I just think about the world that I grew up in, I, I have biases that I need to unlearn inherent, Mm -hmm. inherent biases that I need to, tackle and wrestle down and so it does make when you're trying to find your voice and you're trying to figure out where you sit and you're trying to educate yourself about the issue it can be very very hard to step forward um, when when you simply it's like a language that I just didn't understand until just recently for sure I mean so I just I would say it's this isn't about me or you this isn't about the 80% of the fundraising sector that identifies as white. It's not about us. It's about that there is very little, there's little benefit and a lot of cost to the majority of Caucasian people in this sector giving up space. So they don't. Yeah. (laughs) And, and that's really what this comes down to is when we look at our, our organizations, we look at, there is no shortage of talented incredible, very smart, integrity-filled Black, Indigenous, and people of color who could be in our sector doing work um, in this sector, but they don't want to be. And why is that? And when we come down to talking about it, everyone has a conversation around, well, we need to make our sector more inclusive. We need to do this. We We need to do a lot of things. But what we really first need to do is take a really hard look at ourselves. And I don't think our sector is doing a very good job of it. We are being extremely fragile. The white fragility I'm watching happening across the board. (laughs) Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm only just starting to understand what that is. Last night at dinner, I told my husband that we were going to finally have this conversation and have Mm. you on. And I kind of started to get a little bit emotional. I don't. I said, is she gonna yell at me? Might be really hard. It's so like, like I know she's nicer in person, but you know. I know. I think I think people are genuinely surprised when they meet me that I'm actually I know, I nice because I think their impression of me is that I'm actually a fire-breathing dragon, but I'm not. I promise you. Yeah. You know what my husband said to me? He said, "That's your fragility." Mm-hmm. He was called, and you talk about that in the article, the mm-hmm. fact that we, on the one hand, I'm a, I'm a crier. I will cry at the next Hallmark commercial. The first mm-hmm. one that comes out at Christmas time, I am crying. And 
it's very charged and it's very uncomfortable and it's very emotional and we do hold responsibility for um, improving it and making it better and we do have privilege and power more so than other people that we need to let go of and so you said in your article it's time to get uncomfortable um, yeah. and yet you also said it's not okay to show up emotional no, no, no. I, I think there's a difference. Okay, so uh, that's a good opportunity for yeah. me to clarify. I think there's a difference between being emotionally and caring and compassionate and empathetic and being fragile, emotionally fragile and not open to criticism. Ah, okay. Thank you. So I, if that helps. And I, I, I understand I'm putting words on paper. I don't always get to express everything with the new ones. This is what this is about. Yeah. Right. And this is the, you know, I, I talk about weaponizing it and sometimes that's intentional. Very often it's not. Again, this stuff's been beaten and conditioned into us. You know, again, oh. I, I as a South Asian uh, settler in Canada, I experienced this. Again, I was just talking to two colleagues who really wanted to get out there and uh, name this in a project we were working on and say the words white supremacy. Yeah. And, and I told them, I said, you know, I've done things like this before and it's had great cost. Mm -hmm. So you ready to die? You ready to burn your career to the ground over this? And, and of course, they were they're doing a lot more of this work. And number one said, stop being such a drama person. Uh, <laughs> and, and because, because again, sometimes it feels like you're pouring gasoline all over everything when really we're just like, listen, we need to, we need to just step. We need to take these steps. You need to uh, just it. like sow the salary, but do it now. Name and it. Let's deal with the fallout. Again, it doesn't have to not be messy. Nobody ever said any of this was going to be or supposed to be not messy. Well, I also think, I mean, so you've given show the salary is a good example, right? So there has been a lot of fear of salary disclosure. None of it's been founded. You know, I, so AFP Nova Scotia, which is the chapter I am a part of, um, I'm very proud. They were one of the first ones behind AFP Global to demand uh, transparency on their salary boards. We've had no implications. There's been none. I, I've talked to New York. I've talked to LA. I've talked to all of the big chapters, I think Seattle's one as well. I mean, they. I think AFP Toronto debated it for a long time out of concern for losing the revenue. And there's been little, you know, I think the we have this very ultra conservative idea of if we change something, people are going to stop wanting to be with us. And that we're going, I, I do think, you know, there's a lot of conversation around we're, we're coddling we're treating our donors with a sort of patronizing, coddling, kind of hand-holding mentality that we have to do it this way because it's how they want it. But they're being pushed by so many other sectors to be more progressive. And we're the ones really holding ourselves back, I think, from, um, so sorry to, I just think that's such a great example. It's an unfounded fear yeah. of change. It's well, just a fear of change. Could you share a bit more of your experience with the Women's Initiative? And because this is a, uh, you know, pan-North American global initiative from AFP. Mm -hmm. What's been your experience of it? Because you've got some really interesting perspectives. Well, I mean, they were big shoes to fill. I, I stepped in after Tysley oh. Will yeah, Williams. Your styles are completely different. Like you're They are. I mean, I look, I, I knew when they asked me that this was going to be, um, I was intimidated. I was I really intimidated. Um, Tysley is unreal she's unbelievable just as a human being and as a fundraiser in her her role and um she and i are completely different you know we're completely different <laughs> we live different lives in a lot of ways mainly i'd say the difference is is that tysley is much more composed and thoughtful and <laughs> you know takes her time to and she's extremely um positive and has always been you know around a lot of things um and I knew when I was stepping into this that that was a big challenge. What I wasn't anticipating was a global pandemic and then Black Lives Matter. And to be a white woman in yeah. the chair role during one of the, the biggest economic, social, health, you know, yeah. um, the, the biggest global pandemic we've had in 100 years. And then to have these social movements come about, I, I didn't really feel I had a choice not to say something. Um, and then I had to educate myself. So I spent time learning and working on it. And through learning it, 
and understanding, you know, through my own lens of what it was like to come out and speak out about something and have people push back at me that now wasn't the right time to deal with sexual harassment. That's been the lens in which I've learned about the opposition, the oppression, the way that we continue to want to maintain status quo. And I realized there, you know, I can never have the lived experience of anyone who's black. Um, I will never claim to, but what I can do is stand up and speak up because I have the privilege of being able to do so. The reason I talked out about sexual harassment in the first place was Hedia Rodrique um, spoke at Congress in 2019. And she wrote about being black, a black lawyer on Bay Street. And the quote she used that is in, in cemented and burned into my brain is that it is the responsibility of those with privilege to speak up, not those who are being oppressed. Mm -hmm. Because there, there is already an undue burden on those who are dealing with oppression to then continually have to fight the battle. So how could I not, with the role that I have, the platform I have, the way that I am able to articulate things, how could I not be? And I, I've, it's been fascinating, you know, the, the push, huh? Was that the catalyst list? Hadia? Uh, yeah. To, oh, yeah. Like, that's that's why. You were in the national news. Yeah, but I, I knew that this was a problem in our sector. We ended AFP Congress in Toronto with a lot of uncertainty around a donor code of conduct. Everyone kept saying, we don't know what we can do. It's very controversial. And I thought, you know what? Screw this. Excuse my language. Fuck this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put it out there and it, you can't deny that I have a story. You can't tell me that this doesn't matter because if I'm putting my face not, in the news. Not only do you have a story, but your story is a very common story with exactly four women in this sector sharing that exact story. Actually, so it's now been identified as almost 75% of women in our sector have now been surveyed to say that wow. they've experienced some form of sexual harassment. That's wow. the, the new 2020 survey results. So 75% of people in the sector, you so, know. You know, okay, but there are a lot of competing priorities here, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. There's the combating um, sexual harassment in the charitable sector as women. We need to mm -hmm. do that. Then we also need to stand up for social justice and, um, and diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And, and yet we need to also step back and create space for other people to lean in who don't look mm -hmm. like us. So it's, it's so complicated and it's so easy to stick your head in the sand and go, you know what? Not my problem. Like I've got enough going on here. I just don't have the bandwidth. Like I do not have the bandwidth to get into my own sexual harassment, let alone to the bandwidth to, um, know when I need to step back and create space and when I need to lean in and advocate for. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on how to figure those things out. So I would actually argue that they're not competing. So I look at all of this under the lens of oppression. Mm -hmm. How do we oppress people? How do we hold them back? My experience with sexual harassment is a form of gender oppression. You know, someone's trying to influence me and use their power to diminish me or make me feel small or use me based on my sex. When you talk about racism, it's a different lens. Um, it is a different form of oppression. This is all under the same umbrella. It's about power. Um, I think that, um, you know, when we look at uh, Decolonizing Wealth and Edgar's book, it's, it's a really great way of framing um, money and, and all of this can be seen as um, a way to oppress people, or it can be seen as a way to free us all. Um, and we can make decisions around what path we choose. I think when you have power and privilege, you can make decisions around, am I going to use it for myself, to lift myself up, to get my name forward, to build my reputation, to make money for myself, or am I going to bring everyone with me? And for a long time, I think even in our sector, we've taken a very capitalist model of build your name, build your reputation, get your following, get your, and it's, it's great, but you know, what are we really missing the point of what we're supposed to be doing? And I'm not saying that there's a, an answer here. I'm just saying that I think we're very influenced by our board members, our volunteers, and what they bring to the sector is this view of how things work. And I think we've been molded into a model that 
fits their reality so that we fit into their world and fit into the way that they've built the world in this capitalist structure instead of us bringing them along with us in a, in a more inclusive more open journey into being inclusive and, and socially minded i don't think i think the pendulum swung way too far in one direction and we we've lost i think our sector has lost its sense of purpose in some ways um which is why I think that so many people sometimes are scared by other models. You said it a lot. You said it in this last article to do the self work. Mm-hmm. You know, again, I've, I've, I've met young people as who, who said, I want to be this. Uh, uh, oh God help them. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I told them too. I'm like, you all better be ready for that. No, so, you don't. No. This, again, you shared content, you shared the article you shared other things that you've written and put out there that help people find the breadcrumbs to say, how do I do the self-work? What are you doing? What, what can people do? Edgar's book, Collecting Courage, you know, a lot of these things that are out there, the circle in Canada, we've got a lot of these resources that people can do instead of also just showing up to events and be like, I don't know nothing. What do I do? Well, I, yeah. And I, I don't know about you, Paul, but I'm finding a lot of people are saying, I don't understand what community centric wants me to do. They want tactical these are the oh, things you should do. You- there's that's because I'm sorry, I just spoke over you. There's, no, that's okay. Go ahead. That that's because there's two different conversations happening. Mm-hmm. One of them is a tactical conversation. Yep. The other one is an ethical conversation. Yeah. So, so we just need to have different. I mean, we have a, on Clubhouse. This comes up in almost every room, Paul. Yeah. You love it there. But he really is trying to sell me on Clubhouse. And I'm I try, I tried it. I really did. And I, okay, I just realized I've got limited capacity. I'm making cat videos so on TikTok. The conversations the that you're not, that, that I'm having on yeah, Clubhouse yeah. are very much addressing some of this confusion. Mostly mm-hmm. it comes around in the, in the boardroom, mm-hmm. um, in the Wednesday afternoon room where we talk about boards of directors and power dynamics in the mm-hmm. board. And the question people ask every single Wednesday is should board members give and make a donation? Yeah. Because weird thing to ask in the context of this. It's not because it's really? one of the community centered fundraising principles. Uh, that is what I would say is a tactic as opposed to what we're talking about, which is shifting from the cult of the individual and the power of the individual to the to this concept of self as part of a whole. I and I, I at the end of the day, I honestly can only speak to this from my perspective of, of my experience in I, I can't speak for VU, I can't speak for um, Michelle Mary, I can't speak for community-centered fundraising. They're not, that is not my job. But what I can say is I think we're getting stuck on the minutia of this, um, which is it's it's less about should board members give. It's more, should we have always expected that to be best practice? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Because the point, the point is, and I'm, I'm actually landing on the community-centered fundraising philosophy. You can go to the website and look mm-hmm. at their 10 principles um, because it is about power dynamics. So if you can separate, yeah, yes, I do believe that every board member should make, if you're serving on a board, that should be one of the top three charities you support to your capacity, whether that's $5 or $100,000. But here I think is the problem is that I have been working with boards for a long time, either as a staff person or on the board or as a consultant. When boards make decisions, they usually weigh themselves to the person who's donated the most money. Absolutely. Well, you look, yeah, George brought it up. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, so, so let's separate that out let's try to find some way where there's equal power in the boardroom and decisions are made based on what's in the best interest of the beneficiary. I'll I'll even go even further than maybe what they're talking about. Is the board model the best model? Yeah, I don't, you know, like, I don't, I think these are some of the things we need to ask ourselves is we've modeled ourselves on corporate. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We've, we've modeled ourselves on a corporate model. So fundamentally, we are structured in a way that allows the person with the most wealth and privilege yeah. to dictate. You know, when you look at who gets, who ascends to board chair, it's usually the person who's most likely to either gift. ask for the largest gift or give the largest gift. But are they the right person to be making decisions on behalf of that community? 
I don't necessarily agree those things are I I think I I also have tweeted out in the past um you know I think our sector is really good at asking can we do this but we don't ask should we do should this we? yeah and yeah. I think that's some of what community centric certainly is asking us to do. And as you said, you're going to be interviewing somebody who's been doing this for a long time. This is not new. Community centric yeah. principles are not new. They are fundamentally at the core yeah. around social justice and what it really means to ask ourselves, call ourselves to be really doing what's right for the whole, not the individual. And I think a lot of what we've come to do is structure ourselves, our associations, our organizations, everything. Some of it's because it's regulated and some of it's because of who sits at the board table to model the corporate model. And we're wondering why we're not getting to where we want to be. You know. I couldn't agree with you more. I completely agree with you. It is the next thing. You know, we as a society are recovering from the collective trauma of this triple pandemic, mm -hmm. the social reckoning, the pandemic, pandemic, and an economic crisis. It is the perfect opportunity for us to go, okay, as we move forward, what is that going to look like? So that's how we used to do things five years ago. That was best practice then. What's best practice tomorrow? That's the conversation I want to have a part of. Because if you really do move beyond the tactics, as you suggested, and look at the philosophies within the context of this moment, um, they make total sense. Yeah, and I think also to keep continuing to challenge ourselves on things like the word best practice. Well, what's right. best? No, I, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to, I'm not no, trying to, I mean, um, it's not about you, Kimberly. I'm just like, it's more, it's all of us, right? Yeah. Best practice. Well, what, yeah. who decides what's best? Yeah, you're right. Well, well we, who, yeah. You work at a, an advancement an organization with not just, you know, governance, but regulation because you work in, work in healthcare. And yet you've got a cat shelter on, you know, in a small community that's a completely, in a completely different place who could be doing things in a way that they want to do and redefine their world. And I, I, I would say, you know, I've, this is, I have started to get involved in the African Nova Scotian community from a fundraising perspective and trying to help and build capacity. And what I have come up against is, you know, you know, George brought this up and I, I thought about this when I was listening to you guys talking to him uh, and Jay on the podcast, we raise millions and billions of dollars for universities and health centers. Again, we can do it, but why? And also to, um, we often, and I've experienced this, I don't know about you, Paul, at both hospitals and um, universities, in preparation for a campaign, you go out and ask the question, what are the things we need? And honestly, some of the deans I've worked with they're just picking stuff up that they think that they can get the most money for it, but it is not actually going to transform the community in which they serve. We can, we have a disproportionate, disproportionate amount of resources dedicated to uh, organizations and facilities that are still very white and white people are supporting white projects and white schools and white, you know, when you look at Dalhousie University, I have a, a contact here and she started in the advancement team. She's black. And she said, we don't fund any of the black or African Nova Scotian programming in the way we should. And that's because she's the only black fundraiser at the university. And she's the only one that noticed that. And now it's starting to get traction, but nobody else was putting any time and attention into that. That's what diversity brings to mm -hmm. um, an organization, but also to like, why, why are we raising this money? Like, why are, why are we building, why are we raising a billion dollars for something? Are yeah. we, have we really asked ourselves and are we doing it just because somebody who is the head of advancement, the VP or the president wants to beat the last university in their targets? That to me is capitalism at the core. Yeah. That's about competition. That's not about a community. Absolutely. Um, She's got to help me buy pearls so I can... <laughs> Uh, because when people when people say when they challenge that the very roots of fundraising, boy, I get defensive. <laughs> so, I mean, right now, again, I'm in a project to unpack my own baggage around things like GoFundMe. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and again, how we feel about what is good, what is fundraising? You know, I was really ticked off and I saw a university doing this incredible project for black academics and their fundraising wasn't coming out of advancement. It was a GoFundMe. 
And we're like, why is that an off-campus initiative? This is your faculty. You know, even legally, how does this well, this create money and flow? So, the, you know, I really, the, the, it's scary. We've got to start asking those questions. And one of the big ones is, what is fundraising? Who is it for? Who is it about? And again, good kudos to our AFP colleagues in a lot of ways, where they say, where we really realize that peers really need to be reading more of these personal first-person stories, right? Collecting Courage is a story of fundraisers. And I was even shocked how many Canadian Black fundraisers you know, were leading in this book. And it's their experience. And I think a lot of us need this to, to take a yeah. look at and I, I sit on the board of CFRE. I write the content for the exam, and we are doing a lot of work to unpack what we have built into the exam content that is not inclusive. Okay. We're specifically that, that that gets me back to where I was going, and I know just in the interest of time, I yep. I want to circle back to best practice for a minute, yep. and then I'd like to get personal for a couple of minutes if that's sure. Um, so. Um, I do think, you know, your question about who defines best practice is such an important one because we know that the, the segment of people who are having these kinds of conversations is so small compared to the sector. And mm. every single day mm -hmm. in conversations ha that are happening as part of the intersection, mm -hmm. there are people in the trenches who just want the guidebook mm -hmm. on how to raise money. And, and so we can have all the high level ethical community change conversations that are going to hopefully lead us somewhere. But I still would like to get that guidebook to that executive director in Thunder Bay, Ontario, who is mm. confused about how to, how to be a really good fundraising organization and good charity in her community. So I do think someone needs to provide that guidebook. Yeah, I mean, this this is where it comes down to essentially, I think if you are truly in relationship with your community, whatever that community looks like, and you're truly representative of your community, whatever that looks like, um, and you make decisions as a group that are reflective of what's going to be best for your community, then you are fundamentally going to succeed. I believe that, and I've seen it happen. Um, when you, I mean, you can, and when I say succeed, I don't mean money always. And that's not what people want to hear. Um, but I think, you know, we don't have a natural, um, we have, we have a very corporate mentality when it comes to growth, but we do not have a corporate mentality when it comes to amalgamation, um, combined partnerships. You know, if you have a successful company in the private sector and it really takes off, someone's going to inevitably merger with you or buy you out or whatever. That doesn't happen in the philanthropic nonprofit sector. We have a proliferation of organizations that are full of people who are passionate. Um, I think though at the core, if we really think about what's good for our community, is it having six charities all doing the same things yeah, with totally. six executive directors? And so again, it comes back to, if we really look at what our community needs and we're honest about that, that may mean that we need to step out of the space, take a step back and become a supporter, mm -hmm. not the leader. Yeah. And it may mean, it may mean that we don't get to make all the decisions. Yeah. It may mean that we, make way for other ideas and better thing. I don't think we do that well. So, um, but yes, the, the fundamentals, if you want to call it of fundraising, I do think there's some principles that are, are absolutely, we're not, I don't want to throw everything out, but I think if we're always looking at it with the right lens, then we're going to make the right decisions. So I don't think that answers a specific no, question, but your relationship with CFRE, because again, that's just a reminder to people who often would say that you want to burn everything down. You're a person who's very committed to, again, the change from within and also holding up what is good about us. Mm -hmm. You know, again, this one of our terrible, you know, I don't know what people again wanting to be that independent leader. People often want to go off and start their own things when really we need to be in community, come into the circle and say, let's talk about this here. And again, that's something I'm very grateful to AFP for, for being our professional body and being open to say, all right, let's get messy. And also sometimes saying, look, we fucked up. 
And you know what? Honestly, if I piss people off, they feel like I'm here to burn it down. That's fine because at least they're talking about it. Okay, so that's where I wanted to get personal. All right. So um, I have often said, I have other feminist friends who, you know, went down to the pink hat march down in DC mm -hmm. and show up with placards at, at BLM rallies. I just am 53 years old. I just went to my first BLM rally this past year because it, awesome. it just felt like I had to do it. Yeah. Um, having said that, uh, I have always described myself as more of an RBG girl than a Gloria Steinem girl. And so I thought it was really interesting in your article when you quoted her and she says, if you're going to create change, do it in a way that brings other people with you. Mm -hmm. And and yet we know that your articles can come across as very polarizing, especially if you read them from a position of defensiveness, which mm -hmm. probably a lot of people do, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on the RBG quote and philosophy. And I also wanted to just create some space. I mean, I can't even, I am such a pleaser. One tweet will put me in bed for the whole weekend. And I just can't even imagine <laughs> that, that you put yourself out there in such a bold way and you get backlash and, and that must take a toll. So how are you doing with that? So two things, RBG was an amazing woman. She also was raised in a time and a place where it was very, I mean, when you look at the feminism of the 60s, it was very much white feminism. We don't look at the amazing black women, women of color that really led before people like RBG and, and even Gloria Steinem kind of, you know, much like Black Lives Matter or even Me Too, Me Too was started by a woman of color, a black woman. People didn't hear about it until white, wealthy celebrities started tweeting it out. But it was happening long before that. Um, until white women pay attention, things don't always change. Mm. And until white women have um, a cost to bear, it doesn't always happen. And then we don't do a very good job of bringing everybody else along with us. We don't. We open the door for ourselves, but we often don't leave it open for the people who come wanting to come as part of the process. So RBG was phenomenal, but she also, by the nature of who she was, wanted to have everyone like the idea. And she did it through law and she was a lawyer. And that, of course you need legally, you need to have, there's certain black and white and things you can argue. I mean, and she was right about a lot of things. I mean, she argued the basis of sex on a man being able to take care of his child, right? Like she was doing, so I think that quote is wonderful, but it's also got context. And I don't think it actually applies in that. I don't think that everyone's going to like what I say and that's okay. I also think there's a lot of people of color who agree with what I say and can't say it themselves because like Paul said, there's an inherent risk to their careers. They're already having to contend with acclimatizing themselves or having to be part of a sector that's extremely white anyways yeah. to then to they've already you know a lot of them have left or been fired because they're considered difficult if they critique what's happening i am able to say it and i'm not saying i'm some kind of white savior this is not where i'm going with this but if it pisses people off i'm fine with that because honestly until someone gives me a really good reason why what i'm saying is wrong and i haven't heard one yet I'm going to keep doing it and I will make mistakes and I have offended people. And I, I had somebody write that I am very sharp that I have a trauma shield that I bring up every time something happens. And I use that as a way to defend deflect responsibility. And I really did take that to her. That really sat, I sat with that for a while and asked myself, I am, I have been very direct. Twitter is not always the best way to have a nuanced conversation. I will admit I've made mistakes. I have been harsh and I have apologized to people for that. Um, and publicly, thank you very much. Yeah. And I, I apologize because what I've said has been wrong and I think about it. And um, I, I'm not always going to be right. I'm not always going to say the right things, but I am going to say the things that I, I know I can and, um, and I welcome other people to call me out. Anytime, 
and it's it's part of my learning journey as well and it's it's maybe not the way everybody wants to work but one of the things that really troubled me and I'll, I'll just end with this because I feel like I'm rambling um, what I found really hard and what was the biggest eye-opener for me was when we had someone in our sector openly attacking um, a community mm-hmm. of color and because that individual was so say well respected and had a long history of and a lot of friends and and i know there was a lot going on um a a lot of people stayed quiet Mm -hmm. and i understand the reasons behind it but i don't know if people fully understand the harm that that caused Mm. um and i mean really caused i had you know not just me but others that were had people crying on the phone um saying that they were going to quit the sector calling our sector racist, calling our sector, you know, a lot of things. And these are all things that I don't believe that we are. And I don't think that we stand for. Um, That was a hard, that was a really hard time. And I realized that I've offended and hurt a lot of people through that process. But when it comes down to it, what I stood up for, I don't regret. Mm -hmm. Not a bit. And I'm sorry that it ended the way it did. And I'm sorry that the things happened that happened. Um, and people were hurt, but I was not the one that made the choice to go on the attack in the first place. Mm. But I've paid a really big price for somebody else's decision mm. to to do that, and I, I'm okay with that. And it's I'm not. Uh, I don't know how else to explain this. I'm not trying to make it sound like I'm some kind of martyr. Um, I've I've made mistakes in that process too, but I think the damage that could have been done by no one saying anything at all was much worse than. Fundamentally, Liz, you're always inviting people into dialogue. You're inviting them to be participants. And that gives a lot of people courage. Me too. Again, for me, it's when I think about those costs, but we've got to step forward. And uh, so I'm grateful for that and for the open and transparent process in it. Well, and I just, there's one last quote that came out from a bond report in the UK around racism, power, and truth, and around the experience of people of color and development. And that quote was from Jacob Holt. And he said, racism should always be defined and measured by the victim and not the perpetrators with their good intentions. And I just think that's such an important thing for us to remember that as white people, we don't get to define what's racist, whether or not we want to. As white people, we do not get to define what is racist. That's wonderful and important. And, um, and I, I certainly appreciate a couple of times when you've been in my corner. So thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I'm grateful to both of you. This podcast is excellent. Um, the conversations that you're trying to spark are excellent. Um, and at the end of the day, we won't all agree, but I have the utmost respect for, for you and what you're trying to do with this. And I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to come speak to both of you. So thank you for that. Really mutual. Great to have you here. Okay. Liz, thank you so much for making time with us a priority. We appreciate your candor, your commitment, your humor, and your work. And thank you all for being with us today. Please remember to review, like, subscribe, and share this podcast, and join in the conversation by becoming a member of The Intersection at intersectionhub.ca. See you next time.